it isn't our job to fix things. There was no way that I could make it all better for him. Yeah. And that's how we just have to show up. One of the Zen monks said to me at one point, you know, you, you think that this scenario of working on a hospice floor involves going into a room and having these big questions about life and death and answers for, for patients, but it's not like that. And he said, if you go into a room and a patient is watching Jeopardy, your job is to just pull up a chair and to watch Jeopardy together. Hello, friends. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time. And I'm so glad you're joining me. Hey friends, it's such a gift when I meet a kindred spirit who understands the beauty we can experience when we move towards loss instead of away from it, and the wisdom we gain when we recognize we only get this one precious life. Today I'm bringing you a conversation with that kindred spirit, and her name is Barbara Becker. She's the author of the extraordinary book Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind, which won the Nautilus Gold Book Award and was recently featured by Katie Cork Media in her books that will change your life. Both in her book and in our conversation today, she offers us the wisdom she's gained as someone who's dedicated more than 25 years to partnering with human rights advocates around the world in pursuit of peace and interreligious understanding. She's worked with the United Nations, Human Rights First, the Miss Foundation for Women, and many other organizations. She's an ordained interfaith minister who bridges the sacred and the secular and has sat with hundreds of people at the end of their lives. I can't wait for you to meet her. Barbara Becker, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so happy to finally have you here. Lisa, I have been looking forward to this for a while. Yeah, no, this is so fantastic. The listeners heard at the top of the show me going on and on about your beautiful book, Heartwood, The Art of Living with the End in Mind. Um, I'm going to drop the link in my show notes. It's already in my social media. I'm sure if you follow me at Lisa Kiefer MSW, you've seen me posting pictures. Um, do yourself a favor and get this book. And we're going to, we're only going to touch the highlights because you have so many beautiful, you really share these vignettes of these moments in your life that kept reminding you sort of, of how you think about living a full life with the end in mind because of these experiences. So we're going to dive into some of them, but y'all do yourself a favor, get a copy of the book and read it. But so before we do that, um, I'd love to start where I start all of my conversations with each of my guests over these last four years, which is really 
helping us all get a little more skilled at understanding where our grief beliefs came from and whether or not they are serving us now as adults in our lives. And that's why asking you to think about an early memory of loss in your childhood, maybe, or young adulthood. And how are the adults in your life modeling grief explicitly, implicitly? Is there something that comes to mind when I ask that question? Oh, there sure is. And I actually wrote about it in Heartwood. Um, When I was eight years old, I was at my home in New Jersey and my parents were out. No, and I thought, oh, this would be a good time to snoop around in my dad's wallet and see what's in there. Um, so I as eight-year-olds do. As eight-year-olds do. And I went into his wallet and I saw a picture of my mom. And then I noticed that there was a tattered photograph behind the picture of my mom. And I pulled it out carefully. And uh, it was a woman I had never seen before. Um, she was beautiful, friendly looking. And I was a little dumbfounded. I couldn't think or process fast enough. Like who could this possibly be? So as I stood there, probably with my jaw on the, on the carpet, um, my mom walked in and I hadn't heard the garage door open and all of a sudden she was behind me. So busted. And I, I was a little indignant. I was like, mom, who is this in dad's wallet? And she told me right then that my father had actually been married before he had met my mom and that his wife, whose name was Maureen, had died in a tragic accident um, shortly after their honeymoon. And that was about all my my eight-year-old self could handle. And this is one of the most important lessons I've learned now in hindsight was that my parents didn't hide anything from me, but they allowed my questions and my brother's questions to come up sort of naturally in their own time frame. And we would ask more and more questions. And, um, and I'm thankful to them because I think between that time I first learned about this woman and the time I next asked a question, possibly even two years went by. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I say that we sort of grew up in the home of a ghost. Um, you know, she, Maureen was present in our lives in important ways. And that's when I really started asking questions about loss and love and thinking of those big existential questions, like realizing that my brothers and I wouldn't even be alive if the woman hadn't died. So what did that mean? And like, that was such a tragic loss. And here we were. And those are things that are hard to unravel as an adult, let alone. I mean, I'm 51. And that's a hard, you know, thing to balance. Yeah, yeah. And do you think I one of the things I appreciate, I, I knew that you shared it in the book, but I wanted you to share it with the listeners. But one of the things I appreciate that you said in the book and here too is the ways in which that came out about organically, that your parents didn't have a reaction of fear or hiding, but they also didn't, you know, maybe overly share too much information for an eight-year-old brain. And they really let you all be the guide. Sometimes we need to coax our children a little more or be more forward, depending on the circumstance of the loss, of course. But 
I just appreciate the way your own, your parents let your own curiosity sort of unravel little pieces of the story as you are ready to hold them. And to your point, I wonder, I guess it's more of a wondering than a point. Did you ever express to your dad, maybe not as a 10 year old, but maybe as a, as an adult, and we're going to talk about your dad. I know he's an important figure in the book and in your life is how he held those two things to be true. Like he loved Maureen and that was such an important person in his life. Obviously that's why he married her and he had this beautiful life now with your mom and your kids. So he also had to hold those two things. I mean, as a widow, I can appreciate that. Did you ever talk to him about that? Um, I did talk to him about that in particular. I was fascinated with, since this death had happened at the hands of somebody who had been irresponsibly driving a boat, I was um, fixated on whether he was angry. I never saw him act as if he were angry toward the person who had um, been behind the, the controls of the boat, but he said he had made his peace with it and it took a while but um, he processed a lot internally, as I think men of that era did. Um, and he was really helped along by my mom. I mean, my mom led by example, and she um, she could have easily been intimidated by Maureen. After all, Maureen was in her 20s. She never got older. She was always beautiful. I mean, and she and my dad had never even had the luxury of an argument. I mean, they were right after their honeymoon. So it could have been like, oh, that woman, <laughs> you know, in like our, up on in our pedestal. home, yeah. up on the pedestal. And my mom just wouldn't go there. And she did something that still just like breaks my heart wide open with love, even now that she's and my dad are gone. But she would have a wreath laid at Maureen's grave every year at Christmas time. Just her own private act of this was a life that was important in my family, and I'm going to honor her. Oh, that gives me chills. It's just so beautiful. It's still, yeah. it gets me today, just, you know, right at the core. Yeah. So in this book, you weave, as I said, this beautiful story of these, I'm calling them vignettes. I don't know if you have a better name for them, but these sort of sometimes small, sometimes big moments in your life, these sort of crossroads, not all crossroads. Sometimes they were small, sweet encounters, but they taught you something about what it means to live with the end in mind. Um, maybe we can start even just with Heartwood, the, the name of the book and what that means to you and the, sim- the symbolism of Heartwood to sort of set the stage for our conversation. Oh, I'd love to talk about Heartwood because it was a, a sea change for me when I figured out that this um, this symbol existed. So it was after both of my parents died, spoiler alert. Um, and I was, um, walking in a forest with my husband and I saw the cross section of a tree and found out that inside the tree, in that very inner core is a place that's a little bit darker than the growth rings that grow around it. 
and it's called heartwood. It's the part that's prized the most by woodworkers for its strength and its durability. Um, but it is completely surprising to learn that heartwood is dead. No, it's inert and it's not participating in the flow of water and nutrients up and down the tree anymore. But for the growth rings to grow and have stability, they need that dead inner mm. strong core. And I thought, oh my goodness, we people are so much like the trees. You know, I, um, I, I needed to be able to explain how my parents still felt like a big part of my life and still gave me such, um, such strength through their memories and such love through the time we did have together. And they were my heartwood. And, yeah. you know, I think about this sometimes and I think about all the people that I wrote about and they've yeah. become my heartwood too. And someday I'll also be heartwood. And that's comforting. You know, if things go in the order that they're supposed to, and we all know that doesn't always happen, um, but I will be Heartwood for my sons and maybe grandkids and, uh, you know, just anybody who I have touched, I hope to be part of their core as well. I love that. And I think it's another really beautiful way for us to think about um, two things. One, sort of how do we live our lives so that we might be thinking about how we leave the legacy of being somebody else's heartwood. I just interviewed Steve Leader, whose book was around like 12 essential questions, right? And sort of what are we leaving? So I sort of think about, it in, invites us to think about how are we living our lives so that we can be that for others. And for those of us who have lost loved ones um, who have died, we can think about them as being so, I mean, I, the minute I read it, it sort of was like, I, I can think about my late husband, Eric, and even my friend, Joe, and like being kind of at the center core of giving me strength and that I'm growing and having these new experiences in life and having this new, you know, wisdom that I've gained, but that I get to carry them with me sort of at the center of my trunk. So I sort of imagined myself as a tree as I was reading your book. Really oh, I love that. I mean, one of the absolute best things to have come out of this book for me is to hear from people who read Heartwood right before they write a memorial service talk. And they're yeah. using the metaphor because it's a way to describe love and loss at the same time. Same time. And how we can hold those loss and growth. I mean, my listeners know, sick of it, every interview, everything I write is really around the both and. And I just think the heart word is such a beautiful, actual physical, but of course, metaphor for us to sort how we can carry both of those things and continue to grow without having to set aside. Because so much culturally is sort of like set aside the loss, move beyond, you know, like move on, you know, get rid of it and hear this beautiful process of nature is a reminder that like, it's only the growth that can happen because there's, there's this heartwood at the center giving it strength. Yes. Nature is so healing. I mean, so we have healing. like the ebb and flow of the tides and the waxing and waning of the moon and the change of the seasons and for everything there is a season. And I mean, it, um, it's working for people to seek solace in nature in a way yeah. that 
um, is especially as our country kind of moves away from um, traditional religions. And now like yeah. at least a third of, of young people at least are calling themselves spiritual, but not religious, but are still feeling quite spiritual. Yes. Um, a lot of people are finding that um, sense of solace in nature. Yeah, uh, I'm definitely one of those people. Beauty walks is what I call them. I've been using for almost 12 years now since my husband passed. And um, they don't have to be in a great, amazing forest. They can be in the middle of the city. So yeah, we'll touch on that. And I know nature was really important to your dad in Walden Pond, and that takes sort of a big significance. But I wanted to, you know, as I said, you sort of shared these vignettes of these different times in your life where either you were experiencing profound loss, where you had an encounter with somebody who had experienced loss that propelled you to seek a, a spiritual sort of um, invitation or your own learning. You know, one of the things that I was hoping we could touch on today of the many things that you talked about was the, the pregnancy losses that you and Dave experienced early in your life intermittently with your two boys, right? Yes. Yes. Um, in part, because I think, and I know you wrote about this in the book, because you did this post, you, I would love you to tell people about, we don't talk about pregnancy loss enough and the impact that has for people and what that taught you. And also, I think particularly for the the fathers and you, you and Dave, I know had participated in a ceremony in more recent years, much far after the loss of your girls um, that helped you sort of see that maybe you all were processing and acknowledging the loss and in different ways, but however, you don't have to share the details or not, but I just wondered what you want listeners to know about what you, how you carried forward. I think it was Arden and Adele. Is that That's right? That's right. So thank yeah. you for naming them. Yeah. 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 So this was um, just about the hardest thing I had experienced in my life up until that point. Um, you know, I, I had sort of approached life as, as many of us do. Like if things weren't working out, you try harder. You know, if, uh, you know, you needed to get better grades in school, you put your nose into the books or, you know, if a relationship hadn't worked out, you get yourself out there more. And, and that was the way that I, I kind of went through everything. And then. Yeah. Um, the experience of infertility, which led to, um, was my and Dave's experience before we even got pregnant. And then these pregnancy losses were an example of things being totally outside of our control. Um, and that was a new thing for me. And it took, uh, a lot to kind of figure out how to navigate that. It was during that time that I actually learned how to meditate. And um, going on a retreat after our first pregnancy loss, when we didn't know we were eventually going to have two healthy sons, um, helped me so much. Because what it taught me was that you're not just paying attention to, say, your breath or the experience of your thoughts, but you're paying attention without judgment. Yeah. And I... 
that was so hard to get, but so helpful. You know, none of this was my fault. I played the blame game a lot. Like, should I have done this? Should I have not gotten on that airplane? Should I, you know, it was all in my head. I was responsible for these losses. Um, And I was cruel to myself. I mean, I really like talked to myself as if like, you know, like, what kind of woman am I? You know, I just insane things you would never say to a friend and don't even really believe. Um, But that's the kind of trap we fall into um, at at, in times of loss, not just miscarriage. Um, And also at that time, I mean, my my sons are now just about both in their 20s. One's birthday is this month. but I, I really didn't have any experience um, of other people talking about pregnancy loss. I mean, social media was hardly a thing. Um, yeah. And there were not celebrities talking about their losses. So I felt extremely alone if I'd only known. Um, how common know, it was. How common. Yeah. Yes. So years later... I, I tried a little experiment. It was October 15th, which is the National Day of Pregnancy and Infant Loss. And on Facebook, I put up a post kind of for the first time talking about Arden and Adele and explaining what had happened. And at the very end, I asked people to share their experiences or perhaps drop the names of, of anyone and, you know, miscarriage. Um, or young child who they had lost. And it was unbelievable how many people, women and men, uh, immediately responded to that. And what blew me away was that I knew all of them, but I had only heard about half of those stories. Yeah. So... At that point in time, I made a decision that I was just not going to sit in silence any longer when it came to loss. I had demanded that Dave be be quiet about our losses because I didn't even want to tell them the backstory of infertility. Um, and it just felt like too much. I, I didn't want what I p- perceived as people's pity. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Which... I mean, that is our worst fear as grievers is, is pity. And to be honest, sometimes that's how people show up, right? Because we don't know how to, to, to do that. So, but what, when you walked away from that realization, as you watched the names pour in and the stories pour in, how did that add to sort of your commitment to thinking about, I mean, I think of you, I call myself a grief activist, but I think about you walking in the, in the world in this same kind of way you've you've taken this among the many losses that we might talk about today and move forward. So what, what did that teach you about bringing it into the open? And maybe you said you had asked Dave to be quiet, but years later, I know in more recent years, you participated in a ritual that maybe brought you an opportunity to share more vocally about your losses. Yes. Yes. So through that practice of meditation, I became very interested in Buddhism um, and I had the chance to study with two Zen monks who taught me how to be with the dying. They run a program in New York called the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. 
And um, one of the things they do each year is invite anyone um, to kind of come in and process loss of, of young children and abortions and miscarriages. Yeah. And I took Dave to this ceremony. I had no idea what it would be like. Um, but the, what they did that day was so creative. They had little sheets of origami paper. And they taught us how to make cranes to represent the losses that we had. And um, it was so profound sitting there folding and unfolding the paper. It, it felt like the journey of, of loss itself. And in the end, we ended up with these two beautiful, somewhat imperfect, lopsided little birds. Um, and then we did the whole, um, they, they did a chant and they rang the bell and we took these, um, these birds and they, they put them on their altar and we took one of them home. And I, um, I really believe in ritual. I believe yeah. in what it does to slow us down and to, um, to dig deeper into our lives. It gives us a permission. It really does. And you weave a lot of really beautiful stories of ritual, some that you sort of stumble upon on your own, some that you learned as because you've studied with many different sort of spiritual practitioners and and um, studied in different programs. And I appreciate um, the way you offered those as little breadcrumbs to those of us who maybe I've been recognizing recently as I've been interviewing more and more people especially people sort of of faith or spiritual leaders, how little ritual I've had in my life historically and just how even a little bit of ritual is so powerful and meaningful, right, for us. Yeah. Yes. And ritual is something that doesn't have to follow any tradition yeah. uh, or faith. We can make it up. Exactly. Um, and it doesn't know. have to have a frequency that we always do it every X, Y. I think we get rigid sometimes and we sort of expect yeah. too much of ourselves. Yeah. Oh, that's so true. I mean, it can just be taking flowers outside and placing them under a tree and just having a moment of silence or lighting a candle. I love the practices around, um, for example, the Day of the Dead in Mexico of just having a time that's set apart to honor our loved ones and celebrate their life celebrate their life, listen to the music they listen to, eat the food they would have liked to eat, tell stories about them. And I do this every year now. I bring out photographs of my parents and other people that I've loved and lost and put them on the counter and light a candle. And they're there all the time. So my kids walk by and they say, oh, do you remember the time Nana did this? Or, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's a great invitation to I love that. honor. I love that. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Barbara shares what she's learned about living with the end in mind from her colleagues in her work with global activism. I asked her to expand on a particular story she shared in her book about the lessons she learned from Console, a woman who survived the Rwandan genocide. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. 
And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note. Visit www.lisakiefoffer.com. Hey, this is a special thank you to the many listeners who've already picked up some Grief is a Sneaky Bitch merch. If you're one of them, I'd love to see you sport the merch. So don't forget to tag me on Instagram at Lisa Kiefoffer MSW. And in case you didn't know, yes, you can now get all kinds of Grief as a Sneaky Bitch merch from tees and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers in my Grief Happens shop. I'm actually dropping a new line of merch now that I'm calling Cancer Can Fuck All the Way Off. I think like Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, it's a sentiment we can all get behind. But don't worry, I've got some of my love and light messages coming soon to the Grief Happens shop too. So if cussing isn't your thing, I got you covered. Shop now at the Grief Happens shop at lisakiefoffer.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Early on in the book, you, of course, talked about your childhood friend, right? Um, well, you talked about Maureen, your dad's first wife, and Marissa, your childhood friend. You also talked about being in New York City on September 11th when the towers went down when your young son was, I think you were pushing your son in a stroller. Yeah, he was and, and, your, and your impulse to kind of quit your job and move into working in the fields of global activism. You told a story about, I'm going to say her name is Console. Is that yes. how you pronounce her name? Console? Well a beautiful woman who you learned from who was speaking about the genocides in Rwanda and the things that she had experienced. But you told the story. I'm just, it's like a teeny little, it's a little passage. I wondered if I could read it to you. But I, when I read it, I just, it spoke so much to really what you're talking about is like, how do the, the art of living with the end of mind and some in with the end in mind and some times it takes us going through the most dark places for us to appreciate these little moments. And this story of constantly watching the parade, I think the Pope was in town. Is that, am I recalling yes, the setting? That's right. The Pope yes. was in town and, and she ended up kind of videotaping a, a, there was, she discovered a rainbow that was sort of above and she ended up videotaping it and the video and audio go viral. And then you shared in the book in the audio, I could hear her saying in her melodic accent, wow, a rainbow. What an amazing sign. The day had been dry with bright blue skies and a few wispy clouds. When Consolé's video went viral, viral that day, many people commented that the appearance of the rainbow was like a miracle, an auspicious moment. Others were critical, saying a rainbow is no way a sign or a miracle. 
is purely a scientific occurrence caused by sunlight and atmospheric conditions. But if the world sends the unbearable our way, even in the form of genocide or terrorist attacks, what harm could come from seeking out uplifting symbols that remind us of possibility? It was like a t-shirt I once spotted in the window of an East Village shop. There are only two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as though everything is. And even just rereading that, it just really got me both your awe and appreciation of how Consolate walked through the world, even with everything that she endured and witnessed and was living with HIV as a result of everything she endured, but also just this story of this simple reminder, like a rainbow, like how do we just pause and appreciate the improbability of a rainbow and the symbol and the signs that are a reminder of maybe people who've gone before us or just a reminder to appreciate this moment. Anything you want to yeah. say about that or something you learned from Console in your time getting to know her? Console is um, one of my very favorite colleagues. And um, she, you're right, her father was killed in the Rwandan genocide when she was, I think, 14 years old. And her three little siblings were thrown into the septic tank. And she was raped um, and she contracted HIV AIDS. And she... Um, wasn't sure that she was going to survive. She eventually made her way to the United States. And, um, you know, one thing I, I feel really strongly about is that we all die. Yes. But, um, we don't die equally. And, um, it, like there's so much injustice in this world. And it, if you start working in death, you, you, start becoming an activist in many ways, um, wanting to like work on these inequities and make sure that every person has the opportunity to be heard and to be seen. Um, but we also can't rush it. And I remember the first time that I worked with Consolet um, at a, an event on genocide. I was working with um, Gloria Steinem, actually, on developing a program that looked uh, at what happens to women in particular during times of genocide and all the sexualized trauma on top of it. And Console really wanted to speak. She was on a panel with other Rwandan survivors. She got up to talk and... Um, she just couldn't. And she just sort of burst into tears and she was sobbing and her shoulders were going up and down. And I remember the other Rwandans, it, it makes me tear up even thinking about it. They got around her. They stood up from their little seats on the panel and they got up and encircled her in just this beautiful, warm group hug. And they waited. And we all waited and it was all okay. Like it was a, a beautiful, um, just reminder of the ways in which we have to show up and they don't have to be perfect, you know, like they don't have to be yeah. ready for the cameras. Like tears are good. I'm, I'm tearing up right now. I mean, yeah. tears are cathartic and we, we grieve in our own time. Yeah. So beautiful. And the other thing that the, that story you just shared made me think too is, not only can we rush it or do we have to be camera ready or, you know, sort of be performative, but 
they encircled her in a way not to fix her, to shoo her off the stage, to make it go away. It was just like, we are going to hold this container for you until you feel ready to resume whatever it is you want to do. We're not here to fix you. We're here to sort of hold you. And that's, if there's any message I say in my work, especially sort of guiding grief supporters is, is that exact example. We don't need you to fix or to rush us off or to keep us from being embarrassed. We need you to hold and contain us and to witness us as we are. And that story is just such a beautiful example of that. I learned so much about love that day and how healing it can be. And that thing about presence, I mean, that was just showing up, showing up, not wishing for the next speaker to get on, but just being there. Yeah. So I'm recognizing I'm just, there's so many of these vignettes that I want to dive into, but I also want to help listeners understand kind of the arc of how you keep finding yourself in these situations where you're learning, growing, bearing witness to people's loss, like sort of growing in your own spiritual practice. So you sort of quit your job. You ended up working in sort of global activism for quite some time. But I also know you, I can't remember the timing. So help us think through. You also decided all of that wasn't enough. I really want to be a hospice volunteer. (laughs) Too. Yeah. <laughs> and t- tell me a little bit about maybe, I mean, I might be skipping a decade or something in there, but tell me a little bit about why, what each of those sort of roles or those curiosities or those explorations sort of taught you and, and into the, some of the stories you share as a hospice volunteer quite. Yes. You know, yeah. Revelatory well, too. you know, all of these stories and all of these losses were building up And I knew that I needed a reframe on how I thought about death. Um, I was kind of getting anxious and I started thinking about, um, my, my earliest childhood friend was dying. Um, I was worried about losing her. I knew that my parents were getting older. I started thinking about what if I lost my husband someday? What if my children died? Like, what if, what if, what if? And, and then starting to think about my own mortality. So I did what, um, I always do when I'm confronted Turn with big questions. Right into the face of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not, not yeah. immediately. Like I yeah. turned to my bookcase and I yeah. was like, what can I learn from wise people who have come before us about how to think about death? And, um, I learned that the Buddha and, um, in Buddhism up to the Dalai Lama, and the prophet Muhammad and sages from Christian and um, Jewish traditions, as well as like my dad's beloved Henry David Thoreau, who went to Walden in the first place because his brother had just died in his arms and he was really processing that. That's why he went to the woods. Um, And they have all said these, these sages and saints that if we want to live fully the best way to do it is to walk into the face of death and mortality and not run away from it. Yeah. Um, the subtitle of this book is The Art of Living with the End in Mind. And this became my exploration. Like rather than being anxious and turning away, like how could I get closer? 
And that's the point at which I became a hospice volunteer. I worked um, on the hospice floor at Bellevue, which is our largest public hospital in New York City. And um, because it's New York City, it's such a diverse city, I got to encounter a lot of the ways in which people make meaning around the end of their lives. And that was um, an enormous gift to me. I always felt like the patient's I was with were my teachers. So um, I write about, for instance, a Hindu woman yep. who had this amazing practice. I walked into her room. She was dying and she had a red pen in her hand and she was writing something in her notebook over and over again. And her husband explained to me that it was a practice called Japa and she was writing the name of God, Ram, 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 over and over again to focus her mind rather than to be living in the fears and the pains, but where she wanted to be. And it turns out that Gandhi actually said Ram, Ram, as he was dying after being assassinated or shot by a bullet. Um, so that that is a practice and that tradition, but I think it's also something that if there's uh, a practice that helps a loved one of ours and we're sitting with yeah. them and they're dying. What, what is sort of our Western equivalent or what would be meaningful yeah. to them? So I, I learned so much from every patient. And one day I sat with a Maori woman and the Maori are the indigenous yeah. tradition of New Zealand. And she was quite young. She was visiting New York on an art scholarship when she um, found out she was terminally ill. And there she was by herself, her family, like on the other side of the world and unable to get to her. And um, I asked her, you know, how she was feeling. And she said, you know, I'm, I'm not alone. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, in our tradition, we believe that our ancestors come around our bedside as we're getting ready to die. And when we cross the threshold and she said, I'm surrounded by so many loved ones right now. Mm. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And so, thank goodness for her because I, I really believe that too. I mean, that's yeah. the, the concept of Heartwood. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so beautiful. And also doing that is just such a reminder. Again, I keep thinking about some other previous interviews I've had recently is just if we can, whether we're reading in a book or because we become a hospice volunteer, or I have a friend who just trained to be a death doula, whatever, you know, whether it's sort of to an extreme or even to a little, you know, in our private little readings, how can we then take that to think about how we, what we, we might want in our own practices when our time comes, because a hundred percent of us guaranteed to go, but also what are the conversations we want to have with our family and friends? And I will talk a little bit later, I think about, you know, sort of the end of your, both of your parents' lives with, and, and your aunt, I know Alzheimer's, but how do we take that, those lessons, you happen to learn them from your patients and as a hospice volunteer about what they might want, what might be meaningful to them? Might it be writing, some, you know, their God's name over and over again? Might it be having a prayer book? Might it be reading something from Henry David Thoreau's, you know, canon, but to, you got to learn that lesson sort of in this, as you walked alongside of these folks. I know it didn't always go well. Sometimes it was oh a hiccup. Gosh, that's so in true. The room, 
right? <laughs> Just for those of us who like try to have these conversations with our families, you know, whether we use something like the death deck or, you know, we have one of these conversations where we try to have a conversation and they kind of shut us down or they get mad or they get grumpy. Can you think of yeah. a time? Like, what did you even learn from the people where you walked out and thought, ooh, that didn't go well? When we come back, Barbara shares what she's learned from her work as a hospice volunteer about what it means to show up alongside someone in their suffering and how that conflicts with our standard assumptions that it's our job to fix someone when actually it's not. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. By the way, if you love this episode or any of the episodes, Don't forget to spread the love by posting about it on socials. And when you do, don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kefauver MSW. I would love to hear from you. Would you like to hear from me off air too? Maybe you're looking for some grief support in your inbox. I'd love to share some behind the scenes content of the show, news of when my TEDx talk drops, Maybe some sneak previews of my book coming out in spring 2024. Also, I am constantly reading, studying, and learning all the time about grief and loss, and I'd love to pass some of that wisdom from others along to you too. If that sounds good, why not sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. In case you're wondering why I call it the not so regular newsletter, well, it's because grief isn't on a schedule and neither is this newsletter. I'm thrilled to share. We still have so many incredible guests coming your way this season. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode when it drops. Head over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button now. While you're there, if you love the show, why not leave a rating and write a review? They mean so much to me and, well, they help get the show out to others who might need to hear it too. I want to share one of the many meaningful reviews I received on Apple Podcasts recently from listener Peaceful and Real. They said, Lisa, I just want to say thank you so much for everything you're doing on the podcast. You're an incredible interviewer. You're intelligent and kind and gentle. I've loved every single one of the podcasts that I've listened to, and I look forward to more. You've got great guests, and you really know how to get the most out of each and every one. Thank you again for all you're doing for all of us on the grief journey. I always share the stories of your great guests with my friends, and recently I've been telling everyone about micro joys, life-changing. Thanks, Peaceful and Real, and thanks to every one of you who have taken the time to leave a rating and share what the show has meant to you. And by the way, I agree with them. My conversation with Cindy Spiegel, author of Micro Joys, reverberates in my mind on a daily basis. Check out that episode if you missed it, and don't forget to pick up her book, too. Well, thank goodness. <laughs> I had heard that it was almost a rite of passage when you work in hospice to get shut down by a patient, particularly if you're the volunteer, because you're probably not going to kick your doctor out of the room or the nurse or, you know, somebody who could, you perceive could actually help you. But the volunteer, forget it. So, 
I went into the room of a patient one day who um, was so frustrated because his telephone wasn't working. And I was like, I'm going to help him. I'm going to fix this. And I like crawled under the bed. I got the phone jack and was fiddling with it. I went and got another phone. I cleaned it. I brought it in. And he was finally able to have the conversation that he really wanted to have with his wife. Um, but I had been in the room and I think he was embarrassed and frustrated and frustrated. I'm sure that he was dying and not feeling well. And he told me in no uncertain terms to get out of his room. And, um, and I, I was so glad I had been warned <laughs> because, um, that's exactly what I did. And it, it isn't our job to fix things. There was no way that I could make it all better for him. Yeah. And that's how we just have to show up. One of the Zen monks said to me at one point, you know, you, you think that this scenario of working on a hospice floor involves going into a room and having these big questions about life and death and yeah. answers for, for patients, but it's not like that. And he said, if you go into a room and a patient is watching Jeopardy, your job is to just pull up a chair and to watch Jeopardy together. It's that simple. It's about accompaniment. accompaniment. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And meeting people where they are. They are. Yeah. And being curious too. I think you had talked too about like if somebody has an artifact in the room or they have something like, let's ask questions to tell, like invite them for their personhood, not just their person that's dying, but what do you care about? And they could be yes. funny cartoons. It doesn't have to be the big profound, you know, conversations. Yeah. Yes, yes. There's usually something in a room like that, or a patient yeah. will bring up some story. I don't know anything about baseball. And I had a patient one day, like kind of telling me about the Mets. And I had learned that the, our job is to just say, tell me about the Mets. Like, yeah. what, how, yeah. how does it work? When did you go? Yeah. Who did you go with? And I, I saw that I was really having a conversation with him not so much about baseball, but about going to the stadium with his dad when he was little and how much yeah. that meant to him. There's We're always giving people like, an opportunity to share their memories and yeah, their life and focus on what right. they lived. Yeah. I yeah. really believe that there is a whole layer of communications that exists beyond the conversation that you think you're having. Um, and sure. Learning how to tap into that is a significant um, step in evolving as a human being. Yeah, yeah. And I think that curiosity, that's always sort of my, one of my favorite words is just sort of like showing up with a really curious mind instead of showing up with a fix-it mind or that you have to have the answers mind. And this is true whether you're a hospice volunteer or a friend checking out a friend who's sick you know, it might not always be these profound conversations. They might not open up and unlock their childhood favorite memory. But if you just keep being sort of genuinely yourself and genuinely curious, you're going to be creating that space for accompaniment. And you might be creating the spark that allows that person to have a memory or share a story that they didn't even know was there to be unlocked, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. art of asking good questions would have been a good subtitle for I mean, that's also too. another, no, but I like that. <laughs> I like the art of living with the end in mind, because I really do think as you've talked about these different vignettes, these journeys that have led you to continue to sort of turn into the face of um, 
sort of becoming more comfortable with death and understanding the beauty that we can find in life in the face of that is because we just keep, you know, we're keeping the end in mind. We're not hiding from it in this way. Like it's not going to happen to me. And I think for those of us who haven't had a lot of profound death losses, it can feel like, well, why would I borrow that trouble? And I would just say, I, there's so many things I wish I would have known when I faced the young death of my husband that it wouldn't have made it not hard. Cause of course it was going to be hard, but I think there were things that might've helped me feel more at peace and more at ease. I might've understand the power of ritual and other things um, earlier. So you don't have to wait until it comes knocking on your door, I guess is my invitation. I feel like that's the invitation of Heartwood. Yeah. I'm so grateful for this new movement of death literacy or death acceptance, or even some people call it death positivity. Um, because when we really look at this, we see how much of what we believe was kind of shoved our way by our yeah. culture. So even the symbol of death, I mean, we think about death as like that hooded being Grim Reaper. with scythe yeah. and yeah, the bony finger that's pointing at you in a threatening way. But yeah. at a certain point, I started thinking, well, what if death was a friend, you know, somebody to you could walk alongside with and learn from? And um, I, I actually even think of death as a woman. And it's just a, to me, that feels more, um, like something I would be able to engage with as opposed to that, that very scary grim reaper. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's beautiful. Yeah. I think death literacy, grief literacy, I think, um, this resurgence, as you talked about that statistic about, you know, a third of young people sort of calling themselves spiritual, but not religious, but seeking, I think there's a real hunger that the sort of the Western move away from traditional religion, capitalism, all the systemic inequities that are frankly, you know, sort of we are founded on are leaving people lacking from the sense of sort of this bigger, higher meaning. What does it all mean? How do we connect to each other? How are we connected in the earth and how are we connected between this life, you know, and the lives that became come before us? So I, I agree. It's been really fascinating to see. And I'm a voracious reader and learner. So I get to learn alongside of all of us. Yeah. You know, one of the stories that you shared, um, I mean, there's so many, you talked about the experience of bumping into, I think Captain Mac was his name was a great yeah, story. Y'all, I'm not going to spoil them all. Pirate <laughs> Mac, y'all need to read about Pirate Mac. He was so very charming. And you shared a lot about your dad, who was a doctor, about his own passion for Walden. And, but, you know, one of the things I want to turn to, because this is also another thing so many of our listeners are experiencing is you although I feel like you experienced it at a times three, you know, or times a thousand, it probably felt to you, multiple family members being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, kind of one on top of the other in succession. And there's such, um, even though it's such a common thing, we're just really, I don't feel talking enough about some of the gifts, but also the ambiguous losses that we experience, the anticipatory grief, how we lose people even before we lose people when they can no longer, you know, maybe function on their own. But you went to somebody when you were really struggling because you're, I think if I remember correctly, your Aunt Bev, your dad and your mom all got 
Um, my mother-in-law. Mother-in-law all got diagnosed yes. in kind of quick su- succession. That's right. That's right. And you went to someone who offered you some wisdom about what is bigger than Alzheimer's. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that wisdom and how you applied that to to that time in your life, the season of your life? Yes, yes. And you're absolutely right. So three of the most dear people in the world to me um, were diagnosed around the same time. My dad um, had been a neurosurgeon. So there was this Mm, irony in this, you know, his study was the brain and here was his very own brain sort of unraveling and... um, so it, it felt very tragic, although my dad didn't seem tragic. I mean, my father would- He was very spend, curious, right? He was so curious. I mean, <laughs> that, there's that word again and the power yeah. of curiosity. I would yeah. find him at the kitchen table with a highlighter in his hand, trying to read medical journals. And sometimes they were upside down. And I don't <laughs> think he fully knew what he was doing there. But, but it he didn't was, matter. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he was like this. I said, dad, isn't this depressing? You know, the the totally wrong leading question you should never ask. And he said to me, um, oh, no, this is fascinating. What's more fascinating than this? Um, So during that time when I was sort of struggling with how to to process their, you know, this all of this anticipatory loss, I knew I was going to lose them and I knew I was losing them right before my very eyes. I met a woman who... um, was actually a Zen teacher, as it turns out, by total coincidence. And um, there's a practice in Zen called koans, which are like those little sayings, like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? And, you know, you have to puzzle them through and they're really complicated and they twist your brain up and down, but you're supposed to just kind of rest into the question. And her question to me, she said, I want to give you a koan. And it is, what is bigger than Alzheimer's? And I had no idea what was bigger than Alzheimer's. It kind of felt and did like you feel when she first gave world. you that koan? Did you feel like when she first gave you that koan, you thought, geez, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> there, there was definitely a little, you know, a little like, like, really? That's oh my gift gosh. A really a gift and a homework assignment at a time like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, my aunt, who had been living by herself uh, in upstate New York, had fallen. And I went up to get her, to bring her closer to the family. And I was um, riding in the long distance ambulance with her in the back. And um, I think I was falling asleep, but I was in that sort of liminal in-between place where all of a sudden, all of it made sense. My love for her, my family's love for her were so much bigger than Alzheimer's. Like the caring and compassion we give to other people, so much bigger than the disease. Um, there's always like this, this just human sense of loving kindness and, um, giving that just is far, far um, outweighs, outshines, out everything, um, what we go through that's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's so beautiful. That's something I've carried with me since I read the book. I'm going through my my own hard thing right now, um, just with breast cancer, and I'm about to start chemotherapy. And when you have a hard thing happening in your life, a disease or a catastrophic injury or a death of somebody, 
it can see, it can feel hard to see that anything is bigger. And so I'm sort of borrowing the koan maybe from you or I've been just trying to think of, not with the Alzheimer's, but just like, what is bigger than this? And really giving myself the both and of permission to be like, F cancer, fuck cancer. And yeah. <laughs> what, what are the gifts that are surrounding me right now, even as I walk through this, or especially as I walk through this season of my life? Um, I think it's such a beautiful reminder. How did, can you tell us a little bit about what that, so you talked about being able to sort of feel that in the ambulance ride with your aunt, Aunt Bev, maybe I think her name was. Yes. Yeah. Um, but as you, but you then walked alongside your dad in the later stages of his life and your mother-in-law, I think too, how did you, how have you carried that koan or have you carried that koan with you? And that koan. There's um, gotta be times where you're like, oh, it feels big. Alzheimer's feels big and hard. Yes. Well, um, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for sharing your cancer journey. And I'll just share a, a moment of my own, which is that when Heartwood was released, the very day that it was released, I was having surgery for breast cancer, a, a new diagnosis. And, um, you know, <laughs> A book release is supposed to be like a big party and a party. celebration. And instead I was like taking painkillers and I had ice packs all over me. And I turned to my own book to try to um, live into the lessons of what I had learned from so many people who I had loved and I had lost. And, uh, yeah. you know, one thing that helped me so much was the comfort of other people who had been through hard things and come out on the other side. And yeah. they're like wounded healers in so many ways like where you can turn around in a very real, intentional um, and authentic way and help other people. And I do remember complaining to a friend of mine who has MS um, about you know, the fears that were coming up again, like, what does this cancer mean for my life? And, you know, will I see my kids graduate from college? Will I see them get married? I was kind of going on and on. And he said to me, Barbara, you know, it sure sounds like you're writing chapter 24 of your life when you're only on chapter four. And mm. it had the effect of reframing the whole journey for me and making me realize that, yes, here I am right now. And the now, the presence is bigger than breast cancer, um, you know, is bigger through, than any hardship that we'll encounter because there's, there's magic in it. I'm yeah. in the sort of um, you know, micro moments of paying exquisite attention. Yeah. Um, and that's where the love is. Yeah. I love that. Reminds me again, I feel like I'm almost cross promoting, but that's because I'm voraciously reading. I interviewed Cindy Siegel who wrote micro joys. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, y'all check it out. And her book is phenomenal. It's that same thing. Like how do you practice paying exquisite attention even to the everyday, you know, moments that helps you get out of the sort of see beyond sort of the, the frame that your hard thing has filled up. Um, and, and your to your friend who sort of reminded you like you are, I call that horizon time. I wrote about it in my book, which I hope I will be healed by the time my own book launch comes out. We shall see. But I wrote about it in my book. It's sort of like we, we get lost in horizon time. 
you know, we kind of get lost in the stories of I'm always going to feel this way, or what if this bad thing happens, or I'm not going to make it there, or I'm, you know, something, it's going to still feel like this. And that reframe of just like, okay, well, now I'm blocking my own view to the magic or beauty or simplicity of whatever is in this chapter as he, since he used that, you know, metaphor of the chapter. I love that. You're writing chapter 24, but you're still on chapter four. Yeah. Now I'm on chapter yeah. five and I still, now I'm five. Yeah. I see the wisdom of it. I, yeah. I see yeah. um, that it, it, it kind of just brings me right back to what's important. And that's the art of living with the end in mind. I don't know what the future holds, really. Do any of us, yeah. you know, and no, we do while not. we're busy thinking about cancer, maybe we just walk out onto the street and somebody hits us with a car or something. Like, we just have no idea yeah. what is around the corner. And, um, and the ability to return over and over again to this breath, to this moment is um, like a gift beyond measure. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to this moment and also just sort of changing the aperture of our view or, you know, just sort of changing the direction of our view. I keep um, continuing to practice this in my own life. And of course I work with people and I train and I teach at the university is just reminding all of us, including myself, I'm having to, a lot of my own words are really coming back to, I don't know if this happens to you. That sounds like it happened to you when, with the breast cancer. A lot of my own words are starting to come back and kick me in the butt. I don't really mean that. Yeah. I mean, they're a gift <laughs> yes. back to myself. Um, but I do appreciate that. Um, really the essence of everything that you walked us through in Heartwood um, was really about kind of what you just said is sort of there is this inevitability that we're all going to face hard things. The eventual hard thing is death, but there's all these other hard things. And how do we then use that information to live a life of service, of joy, of appreciation, of quiet, of stillness? It doesn't mean you need to quit your job and go travel the world. Although if that's what you want to do, you do you. Um, but I appreciate Hartwood's message around um, sort of bringing us back into the present moment and also carrying forward that we carry with us in our center, in our core, those that we've lost, those versions of ourselves. We didn't really get to touch on that today, but I also think about the versions of ourselves that are no longer, but that are really stand at the core of who we are and allow us to sort of grow these rings outward. Um, and just such a beautiful metaphor, such a beautiful gift. Uh, really appreciate that and appreciate the time to have this conversation today. Oh, Lisa, thank you so much for, for showing up even in the midst of all that is going on in your life. And I know that um, I am speaking for all of your listeners um, and wishing you well, and you are yeah. surrounded by all of our love and that big group huddle. I love it. I'm going to imagine that big group huddle. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Listeners, remember, dropped in the show notes or follow me, Lisa Kefauver for MSW. I'll have a link to Heartwood. I've been trying to remind people, like, check out your favorite local bookstore, your indie bookstore, if you can, or order it on you know where if you need to, because trust me, I've already gone back to the book and just sort of noodled on some different things. Um, the words constantly shared about the rainbow and um, just some other little vignettes. So pick yourself up a copy of the book. Barbara, thanks for joining me today on Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. 
Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.